you're listening to the City Lights Podcast, where we are equipping you to exalt Jesus and extend the kingdom of heaven right where you are. Thanks for joining us. I became a father at the age of 22, and before that, I was just a, a single child, uh, only child, married, or, uh, the, the son of a single mother, and um, didn't really have kind of younger brothers to raise up or get along with or take care of or watch after. And so 4-15, June 16, 2006, 22 years old was a big uh, day for me. It was Memorial Hospital, fourth floor, and it was about 4-15, and Rose Bella Wong entered into the world. And, um, and it, was, it was a beautiful moment. It was a divine moment. They, they swaddled, her, swaddled her up and handed her over to me, and I actually fed her. I don't know if you ever knew this. Fed, fed you your, your first bottle, and, uh, and they come out ready to eat. Like, they know how to eat, they know how to breathe, and they know how to cry, and um, it's impossible to ignore divinity in a room like that. Uh, it feels like heaven has invaded, and better than that, um, heaven has invaded with life, and I wept. I mean, I just, I just wept at the moment in ways that I, from the, from the depths of my soul, that I don't think I've ever wept before. It's, 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 it's this feeling of, of, of beauty and heaviness, uh, but at the same time, powerlessness, because you're thinking these little lungs are, are breathing on their own. There's nothing I can do to keep them going. God is giving life in this room, life that wasn't there, you know, before. Obviously, she was alive, but she was birthed into the world, and, 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 and as much as I care, as much as I want to be responsible, as much as I feel um, like, like, a, like a shepherd of, of this new child that's been, that's been born, there's nothing I can do to stain or, or to build or to bring more life. She just was alive. And, um, and so the quote on the screen that I think can help to focus us this morning is, is, I think we've all felt this before, whether it's because we're a child of a father or mother, because we've had children or both, we understand um, that the practice of parenting is a deeply powerful and authoritative thing. That uh, children are very uh, formative and fragile. And um, that the responsibility of caring for them and carrying for them is an ongoing task that feels like you don't have enough sometimes to really do it and to do it with justice. And uh, we know, I mean, from the second that we put eyes on this kid, how vulnerable and voiceless that they are. We know that they will look to us, even in infancy, and begin to formulate their opinion on the world in terms of safety. The first person that a baby or a child will learn to trust or not trust is their mom or their dad. The first person that babies and children uh, learn to look for truth um, is from the voice of their mom and dad. The first person that, uh, that they, will, they will look to their parents in terms of things like ethics or morals or what's right and wrong, that will come from from either the voice or the modeling of parents when you hold that child at 415 or whatever your 415 on June 16th for me was, whatever that was for you, you can feel that heaviness in that sermon. You don't need it to be, to be preached to you. And so I believe that, that Paul, when he, when he opens up Ephesians 6, it's with a great amount of significance and importance because he understands the truth that's on that screen. He understands the authority and the power that comes in parenting. He understands that... Um, that parents have the opportunity to give great 
spiritual and emotional and financial wealth to their children, but also he understands that they can bring shame and, and guilt and all kinds of confusion for, for children. But here's, here's what also I see in the, in the verse this morning as we look into it. Paul addresses the topic of parenting because for better or worse, he knows the moments we share with our parents will shape the rest of our lives. He knows that parents will shape our political views in many regards, our shape, shape the way that we look at God, shape the way that we look at society. But also, as we read in Ephesians 6 this morning, we'll discover uh, a security and a good hope um, within the context of, of, of Jesus leading the family um, that he has empowered and he has empowered what he's entrusted in parents. And, and this will be on the screen. I believe as we read, one of the messages we'll hear from Paul is that Paul is explaining to us that although our upbringing largely defines our starting line of life, only Jesus can ultimately define our finishing line of life. That Paul understands the significance of a parent's voice. He knows how loud it is. He knows how much sons and daughters need their parents' approval. He knows how much uh, parental chastisement and criticism can hurt a child. He knows, uh, Jesus knows, and the Holy Spirit knows, as Paul testifies to it, that, that parents can both give generational blessing and hand down generational curses. That parents can both um, set their kids up for, for a lifetime, uh, a future hopefully of blessing, but then they can also allow for neglect and abuse within the very confines of this very, very delicate formative season of life. But our great hope is in this, not in our parents, in Jesus. Consider these thoughts with me. When I see Jesus not my parents, as the, as the compass for my life, as the direction for my life, as the determining factor of where I'm headed. When I see Jesus as my finish line, not my parents as the finish line, a couple things begin to happen. I believe when I see Jesus as my finish line, I can be thankful for my past instead of resenting it, never wasting the strength Jesus gave me to run my race. I can take the best things uh, that my father offered me in moments of wisdom, in moments of clarity, in, 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 in moments of guidance, but understand that all of our parents are flawed and that my father, even in giving his best, was flawed. And, and in seeing that Jesus is the one who holds and carries my future and my destiny and only Jesus, not my parents, then, then with the great counselor, not just the counseling session, but with the capital C counselor, I can begin to take the best of the blessing and leave the rest behind. It's a beautiful thing when we recognize that, that although our parents are guiding us, that Jesus has raised us to this point. The second thing I think that we can see in this passage this morning is that I can accept when Jesus is my finish line that, everyone began at the, that not everyone began at the same place as me, but I can run with others knowing Jesus is calling everyone towards himself. When I understand that parents are not the finish line, I can understand some of the prejudices potentially or the kind of um, cultural norms that are embedded in my mind and the way that I think in my psyche and my ethos. And I can start to, to let go of those wonderful things that got me to the place of, of adulthood and maturity. But, but having um, left the home and cle leave and cleave with, with my spouse or, or, or step into independence in my life, I can begin to see that my parents' formation was a part of my life, but not all of it. And that Jesus is raising me and ultimately 
It's, it's his brand standard. It's his family name. It's his value set. It's his worldview that I'm taking on, and I begin to run with other people that are not from the same kinds of families as me in the same direction as Jesus draws all men to himself. Last but not least, I believe that when we see Jesus as the finish line, not our parents or the way that they pointed us towards their finish line, I don't need to be a perfect parent anymore. I know that Jesus is helping me be focused in the training of my children for their race. The Bible says that flesh gives, flesh to, uh, gives birth to flesh. John, John 3, it says that flesh gives birth to flesh, but only spirit can give birth to spirit. And I take great comfort and solace in knowing I don't have to be a perfect parent because I am guiding and protecting and providing for my children's flesh, but God is giving life to their spirit. And just as he began life without me of her natural body, that the very spirit of God is looking over and raising Rose's spiritual life even today as she's 12 years old. That's good news for parents. Amen, any parents in here? That's good news for parents to know that although we are doing our best to raise our children in the flesh, that God is raising them in the spirit and that our voice is loud, but his voice is louder. And so this is what, I, uh, what, what Paul says to us as he speaks into the family uh, today. He says that, as we're imitators of God earlier on in chapter 5, and as we're filled with the Spirit, not drunk on wine, that the family begins to take on this following of Jesus in unity and plurality. Not everybody's the same, but everybody's complementary is the way we talked about it last time between husbands and wives. And he says to children, he says, if you are under your parents' roof, the Greek word literally means anybody that's under the authority, anyone under the oikos of a parental figure, the operative word is to obey to follow. It's even militant in the Greek. It's, it's saying obey as though life depended on it, as though blessing depends on it. Do as you are told to do in the household. But then it says a very important clause, and we'll come back to this. It says, in the Lord, for this is right. It says, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy a long life on earth. So, Nine-tenths of disobedience that goes on the home just has to do with kids don't want to floss and they don't want to go to bed and uh, they're hitting their sister or their brother or they want more iPad or whatever. Nine-tenths of disobedience is not in the Lord. But I do take solace in that phrase because it's a harrowing thing to think and tell kids of all universal kind of collection, go and follow your parents without, dis without regard. Like just follow them, them blindly. And I, and I know um, being... And a person in the 21st century or just being a human being in, in general, that, that can lead to much harm for children just to follow blindly uh, parents if you can think of all the parents of, of, of people that, that we know. And so in the Lord, there's this operative availability, this space for children to, to live, I believe, where um, I'll give you an example of this in a, in a moment. But in verse 2, where he's providing for an ability to honor the Lord, honor your father and mother in the Lord, Sometimes when it means disagreement. So I'll give you an example of this. You guys have seen It's a Wonderful Life with George Bailey. George Bailey is a kid that works in a drugstore when he grows up. And remember old man, Mr. Gower, he's been drinking too much because he's been sad because I think his son died in war. And so uh, he accidentally puts the wrong medicine in the vial and sends George Bailey off to go and give the medicine to um, somebody down the street. We don't know who it is. It's just a patient. And uh, when he gets back, Gower's all mad at him. He smacks him in the ear and it's like George Bailey's bad ear and he starts bleeding and he kept going, but Mr. Gower, Mr. Gower, you put the wrong medicine in. You didn't know. You're sad. You, you know, you, you're just sad. You don't know. You, you put the wrong medicine. You would have killed him, Mr. Gower. And Mr. Gower looked and it's like he realized that 
that, that it was George Bailey's like disobedience that actually within the context of honor uh, uh, created life and created um, actual obedience unto the Lord like in that, in that moment. And so it is few and far between, but, but we look at passages like this and we think about people that grow up in, as child militia or soldiers like that or people that grow up in gangs or people that grow up, you know, even in the prejudices of the family room and you think, is really, are, we, are, are children just kind of following lockstep? Is that what, what we're prescribing? Is, are we prescribing that all kids, even to cruel parents, are, are just sort of, you know, obey without, without thinking? But it's in the Lord, like, like the passage, I think, that gives us a really great hope, and I want to land on this, actually, because I think it's, it's preaching something really powerful here. He's saying, in the Lord, there's a way to honor your parents in every single season. Even if there is disagreement, even if there is looking differently towards things and, and processing things, especially as you get older. One of the things that I think that it says uh, in this passage, it'll be on the screen, is that although the voice of a parent is loud in a child's life, this is the good news for us this morning, for me and for you as a parent, that the Lord's voice is louder in your child's life than yours is. God is not a cruel God. He would not call uh, children to follow, you know, cruel and abusive and neglecting and, and, and sexually perverse parents. He just wouldn't. And the good news is, is that he's saying, he's saying, I want children, and this letter would have been read in a public forum to, you know, like, like a sermon like today as children would sit next to their parents in the same service. And, and he would say, children, I want you to follow your parents as you follow the Lord, which indicates what? Is that they can hear their parents' voice, but they can also hear the Lord's voice. That six-year-olds even can hear the Lord's voice. And they can hear the echo of the Lord's voice in your voice as a parent. And so this is good news this morning. Another point is this, that although children are largely voiceless with their parents, they are not victims of their parents. That Jesus' blood and, and, and the voice of the good shepherd is so powerful and so prolific that it's reaching into homes of dysfunction and brokenness and decay and problems and abuse. And it's reaching in and it's, it's, it's grabbing out children in the, in the arms of rescue. His arm is not too short to slave, save six-year-olds. I mean, my story is that nobody in, in any authority in my life, in my parental home or my, my, my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, none of them were preaching the gospel to me. And from the age of, of zero to 15, Hosea would say it was the strands of human kindness. It was the, the, the Holy Spirit that falls on all flesh, flesh to convi convince us of and convict us of sin, that the Holy Spirit, even though my parents were not always necessarily echoing the gospel, they were echoing the divine order of God. And somehow in the mix of that, somehow in the, in the vacuum of parental authority, there was a godly, spirit-filled authority that was reaching my heart, that was reaching me right where I was as a child. It's good news this morning that as much as we screw it up, and I'm not abdicating control or responsibility of parents or the importance of good parenting, but we have good news this morning that as loud as parents' voices are, um, and as victimized, victimizing as we can act towards our children sometimes, that the, the, Lord of the, vo the voice of the Lord is victorious to them and is louder than the voice of any parent that can speak to them. That's good news to me as a parent. And so you may not be able to see it, but I actually have a, a crooked tooth right here. I think it's tooth two. I don't know, a dentist could tell me, but I got a crooked tooth right here. And it was one of the lowest moments of my life when I was about 13 years old. I'll say it with a great amount of tenancy here, but I, I decided at 13 years old when I had my braces that I was fed up with my braces and I picked my braces off with a fork. Yeah, somebody pray for me. 
they had taken the bracket out and I'd been playing basketball and somebody elbowed me in the face and I was mad at the kid and I was mad at my mom and I was angsty and mad at life. And so I was just like, I'm sick of it. I'm through with it. And I was almost done with the braces. So I picked them off one by one with a fork. And, um, and, and, and so, the, so the dentist didn't know what to do. He just kind of gave me a retainer and I never wore the retainer. And I, I, I didn't obey my mom. Um, and it wasn't a question of honoring because of, in disobedience because it was the right thing. I was doing the wrong thing for the wrong reasons with the wrong heart. And, and I'll always remember that even as I read passages like this because um, I lost a lot that day. And every time I think about this tooth, I mean, it's not just about teeth. It's about, it's about trust. And I recognize that moments like that, and you can think of probably moments when you weren't at your best in your parents' household when you disobeyed your parents. Moments like that, you lose more than just crooked teeth, you know? Like you lose trust. You think about this as like when you're a kid and... and, and you are disobeying your child, what you, or when the child, excuse me, disobeys the parent, what you've done is you've betrayed trust in some ways. And when there's a lack of trust, a vacuum of trust, there's like a disempowerment. I lost the ability to feel entrusted in my home in many ways. Like my mom, when she looks at something like that, she can't see that as trustworthy. And so I'm going to lose trust and lose entrustment. And many of the things that probably could have, should have, would have been empowerment in my life to go out and try new things and do new things and expand and spread my wings, because I lost trust, I not only lost you know, the, the ability to have a straight smile, but I lost my trust in my home. I lost um, the ability to receive my mom's wisdom. And because I had a, I'm going to do it by myself, you messed everything up, or whatever it is, angsty, teenage stuff that I had, get out of the way, mom, I lost her wisdom. I decided, you know, the things that I didn't like about her and the things that she had to offer me, I'd rather not have her, you know, involved in, in some of the places of obedience in my life. And so I lose the wisdom of a beautiful, wonderful woman that God had given me to learn and grow in wisdom. I lost trust, I lost wisdom, I lost the ability, and this is a big one too, when we're disobedient um, to godly authority, is we, we lose our ability to have consistent authority in our life. And we don't have that consistent voice in our life, we're not accountable to consistent authority, and so we choose the authority we want, and we go to the people that are gonna tell us the answer we want, and so we never get a consistent authority, and so we never have an integral character that's built. Because we learn to take the authority from the places that we want to hear the authority. And I don't have a singular authority in my life. And so two things that I think about this is like when we choose to rebel against godly authority in our lives, we hurt ourselves far more than the authorities we're trying to rebel against. Namely, our parents in this case. But consider the blessing, thinking positively as you reflect back on your life when you were a child or as you are continually under godly authority and orbiting with authority of your parents' life. Consider this. A generational blessing is installed in the family, and Paul is teaching us that as we obey our parents, there is a promise. It's the very first promise offered that when we honor, involve, connect, submit things to our parents, our earthly parents and spiritual moms and dads, when we commit to a singular authority rather than just a podcast off to somebody that we don't know or a literary mentor that's dead, when we commit to a singular authority, there's a couple things that happen. The opposite of what happens when I pull my braces off. One, we can create environments of trust and entrustment. We, we have people in our life that, that are not just telling us how to do things, but they're telling us, you can do this thing. I trust you to do this thing. I believe in you to do this thing. I'm going to give you this, this capital, this thing that I want to invest in you, this time or money or, or wisdom, and I believe that this wisdom relationally will bear fruit in the long run. So I create a, 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 a culture of trust around me when I, when I honor authority and when I honor and obey my parents or spiritual authority. When... when 
When I honor my parents or honor spiritual authority, I connect myself to years of experience. Like exponentially, when I, when I seek to hold honor in my heart towards those that are above me, those that are before me, those that are ahead of me, those that know me inside and out, when, I, when I'm transparent with them and I connect with them and I honor them, I receive this great blessing of experience, that there's years of experience that they could have a coffee with you and tell you to avoid 30 years of problems. When I choose into consistency of authority, I have this essence of character that begins to build inside of me. I'm not just kind of wavering my voice of authority to whoever will, will listen, whoever I like what they have to say, but I'm committed and consistent to spiritual authority, whether that be by bloodline or whether that be by mentoring. So Paul is teaching us that uh, when our parents and as our parents follow in the Lord, we are, we are always obedient. There are seasons, and especially as we get older, for example, when a couple I counseled one time you know, didn't have the approval of their parents to go get married, it was important to me to go and send them to go and seek the approval. The way I counseled them was that because they were of age and independent and ready to move out, even if they didn't necessarily have the approval, they could seek the blessing of it, and it would be important to honor the parents in that process. And so, so Paul is teaching us that even when, when disagreement is there, honor is still possible. And honor is the command. Connection is the command. Keeping, keeping connection alive and defending relationship, that is the essence of what Paul is saying, that children of any age are committed to the parents above them. This is the quote I have on the screen, that honor is this beautiful gift, and when it's held in the heart of a child or held in the heart of a younger generation looking to an older one, it blesses the home and the environment with trust. And when connection is protected, generous, generational blessings can be inherited. I remember this time when uh, we were going to do this, um, this sleepover kind of thing um, with about six or seven of us. We were probably 22 in college, um, like home for the weekend, home for the holidays kind of thing. And one of the kids that was hanging out with us um, was the pastor's kid. Um, and the church that we went to was probably like 10,000 people. So the pastor was like real known around town and everybody kind of knew who the kid was. And it was, a, it was an important call that he needed to make to honor his dad, to call his dad to seek kind of approval for this because there was guys and girls there. And it was this big house, you know, some big mansion. And, and it was like, you know, the, it was a safe environment. The parents were very supervisory. They were part of the church and they were elder board and da, 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 da. And so it wasn't necessarily an immediately dangerous scenario, but the kid, Aaron, decided to call his dad, and ultimately the dad said no. And I remember sitting there listening to the conversation because, like, that's not the kind of conversation that I would have with my parents. You know, the kid that's, like, pulling his braces off isn't necessarily calling his parents about whether or not he can have sleepovers any given time. And so I remember Aaron and his dad, they're on the cell phone. They're talking for, like, an hour about this sleepover. And I was, and I was so struck because it was different from what my, I had grown up in in my formal age, but I was so struck by like, like the patience and the, and the connection and the honor that was going on in the, in the conversation, even though there was a disagreement. Like they would take time to listen to one another and process out loud and talk about the why and talk about how and talk about what and really process what was going on, even though Aaron disagreed. And by the time they got done with the conversation, even though Aaron wasn't happy with the decision, he had honored his father and he felt blessed to obey what his father had asked him to do, living under his household. And I just think that there's so much there more than just kind of do this and do that because I said so, obey, obey, obey. 
Like inside, I think that blessing, which follows verse two into verse three, when it talks about honor, there's a lot that can be done in a, in a, in a context of honor and respect. When parents and children, older and younger people, when people of authority in, in management and in working situations, not necessarily have to come to the same agreement, but can champion each other and defend relationship inside the context of disagreement, there's a lot of blessing to be had there. Because here's the thing, in an, in an environment where honor comes first and value comes first, and I'm not necessarily ready to win the argument, but I want to win you, I want to keep relationship intact, I'm going to avoid the pride of kind of saying, well, like, you're just getting in my way, so get out of my way, I don't need you. You know, the things that you have to offer aren't as expensive as the things it would cost me to stay with you. I'm just kind of leaving the table. But to stay at the table of honor and the fellowship of different generations, especially in authority, there's a lot of blessing to be had, even if we disagree. And what I heard there is like, here's what happens. When we get to the table of authority and we are, are challenged by authority, maybe it's our boss, maybe it's our dad, maybe it's you know, a spiritual friend or so on and so forth. When we sit there and we st- decide to stay and remain at the table, to continue in honor and love and, and authenticity in the spirit of truth and grace, here's what I think can happen. We, we actually allow for the question why to not be a threat, but to be a place of learning. One of the commands that, that Paul's talking about is that it's the duty of the child to honor upwards, but it's the, it's the task of the adult to teach downwards in a family scenario. And one of the beautiful things about teaching is that if you can get beyond the what, like the decision, and get into the heart and the why, you move from just obedience and you move into wisdom. Because here's the reality. If you're a parent and your child is, is 16 and they're obeying you, you know, with, the, with, their, with, their, with their feet and with their hands, but their heart's not, we are, you're, we're going to find out quickly when they turn 18, we haven't properly raised them in the place that we want them to go. So as parents and as kids, it's critical. Like we defend the honor process and the culture of honor in our home because if not, we're only obeying orders and we're never processing true uh, spiritual development. True discipline. Consider the phases of like, if you're a child or if you have children in your home, there's different phases that that go on with this, right? Child development, as you read about this. Like there's this time when probably the best thing you can do is just show kids. Like I'll I'll tell somebody, you know, like Alec who's six, go and pick this up. And then he starts doing it. And I'm realizing, oh, he's not disobedient. He just doesn't know how to do it. And we'll start barking at him and tell him, do this and do it. How did you disobey me and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, no, he just doesn't know how to, like, I take for granted. I know how to pick up blocks. It's like, you got to show them how to do this thing. But soon, there's this process where just telling them to do something and expecting them to do it, that's not setting them up for success or you and teaching them in the way that they should go. And so then there becomes this, this time and this season when we do value the what, but we want to sort of process a little bit about why we just do what's, what's right. Because increasingly, we actually have less and less time to the point when they're 18, we actually on average only have about two or three hours of face-to-face time with them. So if they're not ready to live life, they will never be ready under your home. So it's not just telling them what to do, but it's telling them how to think and process what to do in any given situation because you won't be with them in any given situation. But last but not least, we all know that that children will leave their home. They'll go into a professor's classroom and hear different what's than you told them. And you're at a disadvantage if you have not allowed for the honorable question. Not the, I understand why it can be a, a, a protesting question, a dishonoring question. But, but why in the context of honor is your friend not your enemy? Why in the context of honor, conversation, you know, an hour around the question of a sleepover, it's not about the sleepover anymore. It's about wisdom. 
It's about grace. It's about understanding. It's about relationship. And so as a parent and as children, I think if we can defend the culture of honor in the home, there's much grace and much blessing that can exist because trust is present. Verse 4, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in training in the instruction of the Lord. I'm not going to tell right now because Rose is here, but my kids, they have cues of when they're not listening to me anymore. Like there's like a, there's, there's something that there's, each of them are different. I'm not going to tell them their poker cue, but they all have that kind of like, you sound like Charlie Brown's teacher to me. And I know I can feel the, the shift in the atmosphere. It's like one more, you know, order or discipline or, or lecture or one more word. I can feel the shift where before it felt like building up. And then it, and then it turned because of what I said into exasperation, into frustration. And Paul's saying, you want to pay attention to that because the goal is not just to be right. The goal is to win your kid to training. Your goal is to send them on the race. You're the starting line that Jesus is the finish line. So your goal is to set them out to run the race. You're not going to be with them forever. And almost in a metaphor of racing, as we talk about, you know, Kristen and Kyra and Andre, it's like, I almost hear him saying, and this is like, you're not on the sidelines barking orders at them. You're like running with them, Okay. You're running with them in empathy. You're training them because you're not just telling them what to do. You're showing them what to do. And that's beautiful because you're tired too. And so when they come home frustrated from middle school or they come home frustrated from, from, from work when they grow up, you, you're not telling them as though you don't have problems too. You're telling them because you're a runner. You're like, I'm training you in the thing that I'm doing. And so this level of authority is not just in age, but it's also in experience and in wisdom because you've run a lot of races. And you talk to them in that way. And so maybe he's almost saying, like, like you want to stay just in front. You don't want to be all the way out a quarter mile up ahead of them and be like, hey, how come you're so slow, you big dummy? You know, like, you don't want to set the bar and exasperate them by setting the bar so high they can't hit it. I mean, I do this tons of times with my kids. I'm like, you know, like, pick up the whole room. Like, you guys are crazy. You made this whole mess. And, like, do all the laundry. And they're like, where's the detergent? I don't even know what I'm doing. You know, like, you can't run. You're not going to throw Leo a 90-mile-an-hour fastball the first time he picks up a baseball bat. You've got it. like, you, you can't exasperate. The goal is to be a teacher. You're a coach, not just the referee. You're, you're down on their level, and you're helping them take each step. And a lot of times, they don't need more direction. They need encouragement because it's hard, and you know that life is hard, so you're running beside them. But the other side of it is you can't be 25 feet behind them not doing what, they're asking, what you're asking them to do. Six-year-olds can hear the voice of the Lord, and one of the ways they hear that is because they recognize you're not doing what you're saying. And so, and so when you're telling them 25 feet behind them, and you have a negative attitude, and you want them to have a positive you want them to be a listener, but you're not a listener. You want them to be instructable, but you're not, you don't have honor for them. And you're saying, honor, but you're 25 feet behind them. And they're going, why am I listening to this person? And so, so children independently, they are to honor and obey their parents, even if they're not necessarily the best of parents. There's an individual blessing. And, and, and parents, when, 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 when kids are not honoring backwards, there's still a call to teach. I teach whether my kids honor or not. And there's a blessing in the Lord. But independently, God is leading the family. So there's, there's two battles I want you to see on the screen, I think, with our kids We'll move on to the next verse, but I think there's two battles we got to win with our kids to keep them built up as opposed to being burnt out. There's two things we gotta, we got to win. Number one, we have to win the battle of I care with my kids. My kids, to keep them safe from exasperation, they have to know that I'm leading them because I care, not because it's inconvenient for me to have them. 
I've got to win that battle in their mind. I've got to get them to know that I'm doing it because I care. But the second thing that I need to win with them is I need to win with them within their own heart, within their mind, the I can battle. That they see their parents as I care and they see themselves as I can. And even fathers, I want to even say this is like, I don't want to stagger it one way or the other, lopsided that parents don't, you know, fathers don't have to show that they care. But in a lot of ways, kids are learning I can from their dad. Because their dad is typically the one that's out in the world that, who, who is kind of, you know, under these kind of worldly standards and constructs. And they're able to go back to the kid and say, I've been out there and I've been here and I know you and I know you have what it takes. You can do this. One of the things that Kyra's dad would always make her say when she'd say, I can't, like she, he would not allow her to say, I can't. He'd say, we're not, we're going to put this down. We're going to stop doing that. We're not going to fix this thing. I just need you to, you need, you can't go at this thing unless you know that you can. You can, you can do all things in Christ. The Bible would say, uh, who strengthens you. A couple of ideas here just to get you thinking. Number one, three things that communicate, I care through discipline. Number one, consistency and discipline communicates I care. Inconsistency communicates, I'm going to discipline you when it's convenient for me. Consistency, when I'm given consistent feedback, nothing more. What if you worked for a week and uh, on the A week you got paid, but on the B week they just didn't pay you and forgot to pay you? Like nothing is less motivating than having inconsistent feedback. So consistency and discipline is huge in winning the I care battle, I've found, I believe. Two, calmness and discipline. One of the things my mentors taught me and showed me from very, very early on is this idea that like you never want to discipline out of anger. That's not where, the place you want to be because you're communicating that uh, the, the motive in some way is about you and not about their well-being and their bringing up. So he would talk about shepherding, having a shepherding moment, talking about the why, what, and how, and, 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 and where there's this correction. And as there is a punishment, even if it's a spanking or if it's a grounding or whatever, like it comes in the wake and in the draft of instruction. And so actually punishment isn't even the right word. Probably discipline is the right word. Punishment has to do with backwards transgression. Discipline has to do with future forward correction. I'm speaking to you because I want better for you, not because I want better for me. Three, connecting after discipline. A lot of the best dads and moms that I've seen is they've quick to connect backwards. That this is not about connection. As a matter of fact, my discipline of you is moving us toward connection. I'm never using disconnection as a punishment. And so I want to communicate to you before, during, and after that this punishment or correction is about your well-being and building connection by showing you that afterwards I'm connecting with you more than even before. So parents will hold their kids after a disciplinary moment. Tell them that they love them. Look them in the eyes. I care. I see great things in you. You can. Secondly, the I can battle. Think about this. Creating environments of challenge. When I create spaces for my kids to thrive, like maybe it's not a fastball, but it's a t-ball, and they knock it out of the park, there's nothing more motivating than seeing the ball go through the net. There's nothing more motivating than seeing a challenge that's raised above them and reaching that challenge. That's the very capital and commodity of building confidence in kids is being able to reach for something you put in front of them too, celebrating both successes and failures. It's an incredibly empowering thing to teach a kid and instill in them failure is great because failure is the birthplace of learning. Failure is not bad. Failure is a wonderful place. Accept failure. Love failure. People that learn to seek and learn failure are the ones that will learn the most. It's actually the ones who fear failure that will never grow. So celebrating failure as a culture. Lastly, correcting unhealthy behaviors. Kids know. Kids know when they've done wrong. And when you correct them, it's actually loving. They actually get a sense back to the idea of them hearing the voice over your voice that if they're doing something wrong and you don't correct them, you're actually teaching them that it's right. 
and they, and they stop to trust, so they start to question. Just some thoughts. Um, I think we have to, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of close things up with this, this last passage to make sure we honor the text. Uh, verse 5, it says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect to fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eyes on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each of you uh, whatever good you do, whether it be slave or free. So first of all, 60% of the Roman Empire is slaves. It's much like the working class in any other given society. The word slave is actually known in other translations as bond servants. People would uh, actually marry into slavery because it'd be better off than lower caste systems within that time. So the idea of the, the Bible, which it has been twisted to use to endorse slavery, is completely uh, false. This is just a word that explains the socioeconomic status. People would actually buy themselves out of slavery and sell themselves back in because in a, basically a feudal scenario, it'd be better to be a slave than to not be a slave at all. So in many ways, we can read this text this morning just by looking at it from the idea of worker and, uh, and management. We don't have time to get into some of the thoughts that I wanted to propose, but I'll get directly to the point. Um, one of the things that I think that endorses, actually, this is the quote I think that can be uh, on the screen here. Oh, it is not. One of the things that I think that is the rationale for Paul's, um, uh, his, his endorsement of earthly authority, like when you go to work, follow authority, the reason why he argues for that is actually in the back end of the passage. It's the opposite of favoritism. What he's saying is that you're following authority not because they're better, not because they're smarter, not because you know, you're going to get in trouble if you don't, this is, the, this is what he says in the very end of the passage, verse 9. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way, with respect. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours in heaven and theirs, is, there's no favoritism with him, with the master in heaven. So, so what he's saying is that ultimately, even if you have money, status, you have power and authority, and you're over, in this case, slaves or over employees, you are still under authority. And what we come to realize is if you go, me and my family have been watching Undercover Boss lately on Netflix. This is a show from the early 2000s. What you realize is that the myth, the American dream of getting on top of the heap and therefore you know, mitigating or circumventing authority is actually a lie. People at the top of the food chain are actually under probably more authority than anybody else because their authority now becomes the free market system. Their authority becomes the uptick and the downtick of the stock market. They don't, if you, own your if you own your business, if you're your own boss, you guys know if you own your own boss, my friend Brian Flores right here, it's like, it's, it's a crazier master than the principal at the school because there are no sick days. There are no, uh, you know, retirement plans necessarily. There are no promises. So this myth that somehow we're gonna get smart enough or move our way up the chain so we don't have to listen to what other people have to do, it's, it's, it's nonsense. Under God's authority, we're all accountable to somebody. We're all under someone's authority. And actually, as we move up the chain, we're realizing as parents, we have, in some ways, we're, we're more accountable than we were as kids. I wish, my, I wish somebody would say, you know what, you haven't been behaving the right way. Go ahead and go in your room and go take a nap. I'd be like, thank you. You know, like, you know, because the pace of life is now your parent. I'd much rather have the pace of my middle school teacher taking me on a field trip be my authority than the pace of life. Pace of life is a cruel master, you know? 
And so this myth that like somehow authority is a bad thing and our job is to try and work our way out of it. No, he's like, authority is a beautiful thing. Actually, what makes you free is not if you're a slave or if you're the boss. What makes you free is if you're in Christ and if you follow the Lord with your heart. Think about it this way. It's a little philosophical and deep for Sunday morning, but just stay with me. I've heard, I think it was C.S. Lewis, he said it this way. It's like the fish in a fishbowl is actually more free in a small fishbowl of water than a fish would be in a vast Sahara desert. Freedom in an American sense is freedom from, but freedom in the biblical sense is freedom for. It's living the way you were created to be. So what I see here is that as a slave in Rome, there's less than, um, less than favorite kind of uh, uh, statuses that you would live in. You'd be under a, a, you know, a, a master. You'd have somebody telling you to go here and go there, and you'd have less autonomy than maybe some other class systems. But s- slave or free, you were both under one master, the capital M master that's in verse 9. And ultimately speaking, um, we are all under some authority. The question is just, where does that authority come from? What is the vehicle for that authority in your life at any given time? And so as we close today, as a parent, I almost think about this like I, I want to be a good authority in my, my child's life because I know wherever they go, they'll always be under authority. And I want them to spend the least amount of time under unhealthy authority as possible. And, and I want them to learn to celebrate authority because authority is health and it's a good thing when it's put in the context of honor, when it's put in the context of trust. I want them to learn and grow in the process of authority because I know that they will be in authority over someone else. And when that day comes, I want them to practice authority in healthy ways. I want us to stand as we conclude this morning and we'll close in worship. I didn't get to my my, my final point that refers mainly to us kind of like just as a a church body at City Lights here. Um, But I believe that there's kind of a blessing in this and that is this. Um, I think that... um, that when it comes to the topic of, of authority, when it comes to the topic of parents and children, when it comes to the topic even of, of generations within society, um, that the authority question is quite challenging, especially the authority question when it, comes to, um, when it comes to generations. And there's a passage I want to show you guys, and this, I think, is my heart behind the thinking of this message. If we could hone in on this last um, kind of prophetic promise in Malachi, the last um, book of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, 6. But one of the things I see in the heart of the passage that we've read today in Ephesians 6 is this. Part of the symptom of revival is that generations, parents, children, managers, bosses, and, and fathers and mothers, they turn their hearts towards each other. That the work of the enemy is to divide families, to divide younger and older, divide generations, to have baby boomers and Gen Xers look down at millennials or millennials look backwards at Gen Xs and have there to be division, misunderstanding, and outside the context of honor and trust, an abuse of authority and an authority that's used for fear and not for love. And what I see in Malachi, what I see in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes, and what I see ultimately in Ephesians 6 is this vision that he is coming. And as he comes, the fruit of that will be that generations turn towards each other as opposed to apart from each other. And so this is my blessing quickly as we, as we just respond today in worship. Um, but God, would you, would you reinstall a hope and a future um, that, in, that just trusts and believes that if you've taught us this morning through Ephesians 6, that authority is not an enemy, it's our friend. That authority in the hands of our boss in the hands of our teacher, 
in the hands of our, 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 our principal or the hands of our, our fathers, our mothers, is meant to give a gift to us so long as we practice it with honor, so long as we seek the Lord in it and make him our finish line. May that just be a blessing. I ask for um, a conviction to fall on those in the room that are older than 40 to pursue the hearts of people younger than 40. Generations are divided by 40 years, right? So the assumption that they'll call me, they have my number, God, would you turn us from that? Would you turn us to say, no, I'm not gonna just wait for them. I'm turning towards them because the Holy Spirit's calling me to restore authority in the generations. And, and those that are younger than 40, not waiting for somebody to go call our number, but in honor and humility and in integrity and maybe knowing they're not going to teach us in quite the same way that we might've anticipated or hoped for, trusting in the process of honoring authority, just trusting it at face value, understanding that, that, that it might be the harder path, but it's the good one. It's the one prescribed all the way from the Old Testament into the New Testament through Paul. God, that you would restore a healthy, biblical, godly authority in our church and in our society, in our homes. I do believe it's the foundation of what it is you're calling us to do in terms of building families. So thank you for your gift of authority. Thank you for your gift of parenting. It is a precious and vulnerable place to be, but we stay there and we fight for it because I do believe that's where generational curses are, are broken and generational blessings are restored. We love you and see you in this time. Thanks for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please subscribe and leave us feedback on our iTunes channel. For more information about our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc. Thanks again for exalting Jesus with us.